Welcome to Homegrown History with Limestone County archivist Rebecca Davis and longtime Athens, Alabama native Richard Martin. Each episode, Richard and Rebecca bring to life some of the famous and infamous stories etched in Limestone County's rich history. Hello and welcome to Homegrown History, the Limestone County History Podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Rebecca Davis. I'm the archivist at the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. And I am joined here today by my esteemed co-host. I'm Richard Martin, the oldest one here. That's right. And today we have what we feel like is a really important topic to discuss, don't we, Richard? Yes. And something that's very, very timely. If you haven't been living under a rock in Antarctica for the past two years, and uh, that is pandemics and epidemics in Limestone County and in the surrounding area. And so we're very honored to have a special guest today who is an expert in the field of public health in Limestone County. And this is, please introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Tracy Collins. I'm the president at Athens Limestone Hospital. That's right. Tracy, we, re- we know you're a busy lady. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. What we wanted to do is give a little bit of a sense of what Limestone County has faced over the decades and the centuries in terms of worldwide global pandemics, you know, state and national epidemics that have hit home. And then talk a little bit about some of the lessons we've learned from that and how uh, in the present and in the future that Limestone County is working to mitigate the negative effects of these diseases that, you know, we, we live in a fallen world. The truth of the matter is there's just disease and death. And modern science can hold it off for so long, but as we found out since 2020, nature has its way, doesn't it, Tracy? It does. It really does. <laughs> so, without further ado, what I want to do is just start with the beginning of some of our recorded history in Limestone County from the newspapers and uh, talk about some of these different diseases that we have tried to eradicate, some successfully, some not so successfully. And Richard is in the unique position of his family has been here. Right. Uh, my great uncle lived in Mooresville, and he was in charge of health down there. And then, Wait, what was his name? Uh, J.W. Martin. Oh, that's right. Uh, no, W.G. Martin. W.G. Yeah. Martin. So many Martins. Uh, <laughs> but W.G. was head of the health department down there in Mooresville. And in 1787... Or 1887. 1887, excuse me, yellow fever came. And there was a lot of rain, and that brought on the mosquitoes. So Mooresville had a shotgun quarantine. In other words... You couldn't leave Mortal or come in Mortal or you'd get shot. And we thought mask mandates were bad. Right. <laughs> and my cousin told me back in those days, uh, they would order a 55-gallon drum of quinine to help kill malaria with all these different people. And so a shotgun... You know, yeah. whatever. Keep well, people and out. Was, yellow fever has always, with, with Limestone County being on the Tennessee River and all the backwaters up in up in the Mooresville area. Right. And, of course, the Elk River. And we do have a very fertile, water-fed place to live. But that also brings the mosquitoes. And mosquitoes are the deadliest animal on the planet. 
Isn't that wild to think about? TV, when TVA came, that was one of the number one things they got rid of. Yes, and so yellow fever, malaria, these are some that go all the way back to some of the earliest. In fact, it's not in the papers, but this is one of the you know stories that we have on record in Limestone County is that Cottonport. Cottonport was one of the very first. If you if you go back and listen to our early, early Limestone County episodes of some of the first ones of homegrown history, we talk about Cottonport. And it was a uh, really a booming area down there near Mooresville where people would drop off their cotton and overwinter it until they could get over the shoals in the spring. And um, part of the reason it's not there anymore is yellow fever. It killed so many people that finally everyone just had to pack up and flee. But in 1866 is one of the first records that I see in the papers of epidemics reaching Limestone County, and it was smallpox, of all things. You know, you think of smallpox as being something that was like across the pond back in Europe or something, but no, smallpox uh, reared its ugly head in Limestone County over the years throughout the 1800s. Dr. Um, J.S. Blair and A.F. Blair, I guess they were brothers, they had a doctor's office out at Lucky Hit, which if you don't know where that is, it's around where Lucy's Branch Marina is now. That used to be called Lucky Hit. And they put a big ad in the paper that you are safe with us. We use sanitive agents in harmony with the life principle in the care of diseases. And they they also said, you know, what we don't use is opium. So don't have to worry about those poisons. But... Um, Dr. J.S. Blair's wife, she actually died of smallpox that year. So whatever they were doing, you know, it wasn't, it was what they, the best they knew to do at the time. And throughout the 1860s and 1870s, you can read about yellow fever epidemics. You've got cholera. A lot of these are also waterborne illnesses like cholera. One thing I thought was interesting, Tracy, in, in reading about this is I had to look up what some of these diseases even are because they're so eradicated. I didn't know for sure what typhoid did to the body. It's not pretty. It's diarrhea and fever. It's a really horrible way to go. And a lot of people died from typhoid. And tuberculosis and diphtheria were both respiratory infections. You know, we get the Tdap. In fact, little babies get the Tdap. That's tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis. And pertussis is whooping cough. And didn't you tell me something about one of your folks had whooping cough? My great-grandfather died with whooping cough in the 1800s. Yeah, well, it may have been in 1874 because... It, it was. In the 1870s. Yep, because in 1874, whooping cough and mumps both took hold in Limestone County. And in April, the paper said several young men were wearing white handkerchiefs around their face. It was no secret order. It was the mumps. So throughout the years, through the 1860s, 70s, and so on, people would flee. I guess they didn't exactly know what was causing the yellow fever. They just knew it was catching. And so when yellow fever broke out in 1879, people were leaving town, and um, a guy named Squire Johnson said, I will furnish free of charge half of my dwelling house for people fleeing yellow fever. He lived up near Willie Springs. But um, when you get down to... What you were talking about in 1878 was what you were talking right. about when your, when your family was mm-hmm. part of the yellow fever quarantine. Mm-hmm. Well, 10 years later, there was another big scare, and the city council passed a quarantine and kept anybody from coming from anywhere south of Limestone County. And they even put armed guards all along the Tennessee River just to keep anybody from 
Ford, Nover, Conover Bridge, whatever. Nobody could come in to Limestone County. And that was one of the ways they were able to keep it from getting so bad because it was really, really bad in Decatur. Here's the thing. With these pandemics, with these diseases coming in, public hysteria also took hold. And I read somewhere that suddenly everybody, oh, this was in 1888, people were running to other places to escape the fever, and the paper said, everybody seems to remember there's a country cousin they haven't been to see this year. So people were taking off, and a guy, uh, A.C. Legg, who lived up in Elmont, he was getting ready to go and take him some snacks for the road. So he, he slaughtered a lamb and got ready to salt it down so he'd have something to bring with him to eat. But he accidentally grabbed the sugar bucket instead <laughs> in his hurry. <laughs> um, but, yeah, you go on into, even on into 1900, smallpox was still a thing. And have you ever heard, Tracy, of a pest house? I have not. So apparently this is what they used to call homes where they would quarantine people that were sick. And in 1901, the county built a pest house at Friend Spring, which it says that's two miles northwest of Athens. And that's where people had to be quarantined. And they were trying to keep smallpox from spreading. And the commissioners even ordered enough vaccines for everybody in the county to get smallpox vaccine. And I think they stopped just short of mandating smallpox vaccines. But there was a huge, huge push. They, they couldn't even hold circuit court because the smallpox was so bad in the county. And so as you go on into, you know, the 19-teens, you still see some of that. But, of course, the one that so many people have compared to, um, to the COVID pandemic is the Spanish flu. Right. And your family yeah. had some losses. My great too. uncle, 49 years old, health as a horse. He got it and he died. Did he, he lived here, too? He lived up north. Did he? But he got it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me, of course, the Spanish flu really is kind of misnamed. Apparently, it may have actually started in Kansas, from what I understand. But so many of the young men who were serving in World War One got sick with the Spanish flu, brought it back home to the States, and... You know, it's been said that the people who got the Spanish flu were cut down twice before their time because so many people were young. Yes. That, you know, it really disproportionately affected young people, whereas we see like with COVID, it disproportionately affects older people. And some of the things that the city did just to try to stop it, there was dirt streets all around town at the time. And so the city sprinkled the, the streets with water just to try to keep the dust down because they thought it might be spreading with that. In October, there were 82 deaths in 21 days. And let's see, I think it was 12 of those. 11 ch- were children under 12 that all died just in three weeks' time. My goodness. Um, the undertaker, Mr. Holland, he couldn't even keep up. He was running around town just trying to pick up. And the doctors couldn't keep up. Dr. Crutcher was a long-time serving doctor here. In fact, his clinic was one of the predecessors of Athens Limestone Hospital. He was so exhausted from going weeks with no sleep and going from house to house to house because there was no hospital back then. You know, he had to make house calls. And, you know, back then, this is 1918, they had those Model Ts, you know, that you had to crank to get to go. Well, he went to cranking his car to try to get to the next house and slipped and broke his arm and put him out of commission just because he was so exhausted. So what some of the doctors started doing was hiring people, hiring chauffeurs to drive them around the county just so they could sleep 
in between houses. It was just it was just so bad here. And and really this is one of those times when you see the people of Limestone County all pitch in from top to bottom. There was telephones here at the time, but they couldn't run the telephones to let people know to make a house call because all the telephone operators were sick. So the mayor's wife and several other prominent women in town all came in and, and worked the telephones. And, you know, even over in Muscle Shoals, you know, they had a nitrate plant back then. And there were 3,000 cases of the flu in the Shoals. And the nitrate plant was sent so heavily that the health department, state health department, sent a whole trainload of doctors and nurses to the plant just to treat their workers that were ill with the flu. And later, many later years, a man who had lived down there by the plant at the time said he could remember seeing bodies just stacked up. By the railroad. There were so many people who died. And so, you know, we think of the flu as just being something that, you know, you get sick, you take some NyQuil, and you sleep it off, and you're okay. But it really was a terribly deadly pandemic back then in 1918. One thing I thought was funny, though, you know, this is also during the time of Prohibition. And um, they basically threw that out the window because, you know, what's one of the things they were using to treat the flu? Whiskey. Thousands of gallons of whiskey were being used to treat the flu. So from there, you know, the flu still reared its ugly head every year. And um, in the meantime, you still had waterborne illnesses, malaria and yellow fever and so many of these other diseases. There were some odd one-offs of some of the things we get vaccines for now. Um, In 1924, four boys were playing with toy pistols shooting blank cartridges into their hand somehow, and they got tetanus, and three of them died. Uh, There's just things that you don't think of, you know, in our modern era of dying from. But as you go on into the 20th century, and, and modern medicine got to be better than it is now, and they started coming up with ways to mitigate these problems, um, and especially with TVA. That made a big difference. One of the big, big pushes for TVA was to improve the water drainage. Um, They actually flew over with pesticides to try to kill off the mosquitoes down in the swamps in South Limestone, and it made a difference. It really helped reduce all those. Although, if you've ever been down where Cottonport used to be and down there near Mooresville in the backwaters, there's still a lot of mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I went down there kayaking last year, and I thought I was going to get eaten alive and carried off before I got done. So mosquitoes, I mean, you know, we think of these as long-ago problems, but there's still a lot of this that we're contending with today. I know you said something before we start recording, Richard, about TVA spraying just, for the mosquitoes. Yeah, you know, they cleaned up the backwaters, and mm-hmm. that's that was the good thing about TVA. Not the electricity, but the cleaning it up. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, and draining it. And so as you go through and you see the fight against different diseases, that there's always people, and a lot of times it's the prominent people in town, who take on the task of raising money, raising awareness, you know, ensuring vaccinations and, and so on are cared for. And I was reading through in 1938 there was the annual President's Birthday Ball for the benefit of polio relief. And I'm reading through who all was, and there I saw Mrs. Fred Martin. Who was that, Richard? That's my mother. That's right. She had Roosevelt's party and taking up Roosevelt's dimes for polio. And then we Boy Scouts would take up the money 
in the Ritz Theater each Friday night for polio. We were really scared of polio. I mean, it was, there are kids in Athens that got it, and it really did damage, and it put the fear of God in us. What were some of the first things you remember? I know you, you talk about going to the Boy Scouts and the theater and so on and yeah. fighting polio. I mean, yeah. do you remember getting vaccines? And, and Well, we and didn't, they didn't done? have the vaccine then. Mm. It was in 1957 or 58, because I was a senior or something like that, and that's when they started giving the shots, polio shots. Mm. And nobody argued about it. Everybody wanted it. Yeah. <laughs> so was polio maybe the big fear when you it were was. Up, or it were was, there some others no, too? No, polio was the big fear. And we had some kids in Athens that got it. And, and at one time they closed the Athens swimming pool in the summer because they were scared of coming from the water. They didn't know where it was coming from at that right. time. But Dr. Salt got that straightened out, thank God. Yeah. So um, your mama was one of the ones who right. organized that ball, mm-hmm. and both of your, and two of your aunts, yeah. too. Vashti she and had four children that didn't want to have polio. Well, and two, that was the same year that Chambers Lumber, same ones who finished the courthouse, they got a contract to start putting screens on houses yeah. around the Wheeler Refuge and so on just to try to keep malaria down. And uh, the next year, they actually mosquito-proofed, I guess putting screens up, 250 houses all right. along the shoreline. Right. Just Because you think about it back then, People didn't have air conditioning. No. And especially if you were po- just po' folks down on the river, you Any didn't po- have money for screens on no. windows. You just kept all the doors and windows open and let whatever wanted to That's fly right. in and out. Right. Mosquitoes, right. dogs, kids, whatever, yeah. you know. <laughs> but it, it, a lot of this involved just public health efforts to change the way people did things. You know, I saw when I looked in the papers just uh, people encouraging Folks, like, dump out buckets in your yard and old tires. And, I mean, I guess, Tracy, y'all are still doing some of these type things today, aren't you, just to encourage public health efforts? But t- tell me a little bit about that. The big thing we still encourage is masks, especially inside the hospital. And, you know, mm-hmm. that's a controversial topic, as it has been since they were uh, encouraged uh, and in a lot of places mandated. So that's one thing, social distancing, hand washing, because, you know, we are still dealing with COVID patients mm-hmm. and even our employees, mm-hmm. um, even with the vaccine. It's still just like the flu. You can get yeah. the flu vaccine, but you can still get the flu, the same thing with COVID. Well, and as we see, there were two more, and I want to talk about the 1957 flu pandemic. I want Richard to talk about how it affected him. But, you know, the flu, we still see that people die from the flu every year. Uh, of course, it was the Asian flu is what it was called in 57 and 68. But a lot of it's just mutations of that same strain of the flu people were dying from in 1918. It just continues. It's become endemic to our population, hasn't it? Yes. But some years are worse than others. Tell about 1957. In 1957, I was a senior in high school playing football with Athens, and we were the number one team in the state of Alabama, and we were going to go play Coleman, and they hadn't won a game all year, and our quarterback got the flu, and so he couldn't play. And so, Wait, what was his name? Myron Hargroves. Okay. And he w- went on to SMU, played at SMU. But Myron was our quarterback, so he couldn't play. So we had a substitute quarterback. And Cullman wanted to call the game off, but we've already rented all the buses and fixed to come, so we went on anyway. 
And we got in it. Yeah, we'll beat them and no problem <laughs> at all. And at the beginning of the fourth quarter, it was 18 to nothing. Mm. We were ahead. And bam, 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 they came back and scored, 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 and they beat us 19 oh, to 18. Man. Oh. 19 to 18. 19 to 18. We were number one in the state. But anyway, of course, the flu is the reason why. Right. Well, and I looked through some of the papers from 57, and a full 30% of the students in city and county schools were out with the flu. And the boards of education were trying to determine if they should just close it down, you know, what they should do. And, and quarantines and, and shutdowns of nothing new. I, back in 1918, when the Spanish flu got so bad, they shut down the movie theaters. They shut down the churches, the schools, the businesses, everything. I mean, just, just like what we dealt with at the beginning of covid when everybody suddenly developed a great interest in baking bread, I guess back then they were already baking bread. What do you think, Richard? Yeah. That's, that gets us to today. That's pretty much what we've got. So, Tracy, I'd like for you to talk about how the hospital has tried. And now, have, when did you come to the hospital? I've been at the hospital for 32 years. Right. Oh. So you've I, seen I remember things. a long time ago. I have seen some things. As, as you were speaking, though, every, you know, I was like sitting over here shaking my head. I'm thinking, oh, that sounds like what we did. You know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. During those different errors that you mentioned, um, it's amazing that though modern science, as we call it, wasn't around, they still did some of the same things. It's back to the basics sometimes, right. you know. Right. Tell me a little bit more about what you mean by that. Quarantine. That back to the Quarantine. Basics. Um, a community pitching together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are out, so other people have to step up to the plate. Support from your community is huge with us. It, mm-hmm. You know, this is such a great podcast because, you know, it re- it'll resonate with a lot of people mm-hmm. as they listen to it. A- as Richard said, I've been at the hospital a long time. And so I, tell me, I want to know a little bit about you. How did you get your start at the hospital and then rise to the top? So I graduated from high school, and then the next spring, I got a job at the hospital. I was 18, um, and they hired me for midnight shift in the emergency department. Oh, fun. Yeah, so I worked 11 to 7, and during that time, the the emergency department was only eight beds. We had a little bitty cubby hole right outside Mm -hmm. the main ER, and I registered patients, and as they come in, I pretty much looked at them and decided if I needed to run and get a nurse. And, you know, I remember coming home one morning and called my mom and I said, I'll tell you one thing, I'll never be a nurse. The things that they see, mm-hmm. and um, I, I was just, you know, a little intimidated by all the things and, sure. and the sick people and the injured people that I saw. But within the next few months, I went to work in what we called data processing at mm-hmm. the time, and it was information services. I would key in all the charges for the entire hospital. Yeah. And I was only there for a few months, and they needed me more in insurance, so I moved to insurance. And while I was there one summer working, uh, there was a a temporary lady that came in just to help us with, you know, follow-up claims and different things, and she said, what are you going to do with your life? And it was just kind of, you know, (laughs) she she just kind of blurted it out. She said, what are you going to do with your life? I'm like, what do you mean? And she said, are you going to file insurance for the rest of your life? And I'm like, well... You know, I'm just going day to day. And, you know, at the time, I still didn't have children. And she said, you should think about going back to school. So uh, a friend of mine had told me uh, about a nursing program at Calhoun. The one thing you said you'd never do, huh? Yeah, I know. (laughs) It's so, um, honestly, during the time that I was thinking about what I wanted to do, my granddaddy, my dad's dad, Willis Clem, Mr. Martin, I don't know if you know him. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. So he had a heart attack. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, they treated him at the hospital. And these are the people that I had known for just a couple of years. They were taking care of my granddaddy, and yeah. I watched them. Right. I was watching from, from you know, it it was something to see well, all the things that I had seen in the past couple of years, and my family was on that end of it. That's right. When it hits yeah. home, it really hits yeah, home. It does. It? it does. So granddaddy was transferred. He was um, airlifted to Huntsville and sent him home a few days later. They thought everything was fine. And then uh, two weeks later, he had another massive heart attack and he passed away. Yeah. And then, and I remember getting the phone call that granddaddy was worse. I went rushing to their house and I saw two paramedics that I had grown to respect so much um, working with my granddaddy on the carport. And, you know, I saw that and then they took him to the hospital. And the, the way the staff was with us when he passed away, I was like, I want to be that person. Yeah. I want to be that person that people remember. She was the nurse that took care of me. Right. Right. And so I get emotional to this day thinking about it. Go right ahead. You're making me emotional. (laughs) Me too. I have to get a box of tissues here in a minute. But um, so I started nursing classes in 95. I was in school till 97. During spring break, I, I got pregnant with my son, Logan, and had him that November. And then that January after he was born, I started as a staff nurse in the ER. And I did that until 2001. I was a staff nurse, and then I was promoted to charge nurse. Mm -hmm. Um, In 2001, there was an opening in compliance department for a nurse auditor to help with reimbursement and um, coding. I did that for 15 years. I made a lot of great relationships during that tenure. And um, there was actually an opening for a nurse manager on our med surge units. It was 52 beds. And I wanted some more clinical experience because my goal was to move up in nursing administration. Yeah. Uh, I did that for 16 months. And then the CNO, Jan Lenz, retired and I applied for the CNO job and I got that. Hallelujah. So in 2016, um, actually 2017, I became CNO and then... 2020, March of 2020, this historic event called COVID hit not only Limestone County, but the world. Um, Tell how you prepared for it. Yeah. So, you know, like I said, I absolutely love my job. Sometimes I question my sanity because it's so involved and there's a lot that goes into what I do. But just to kind of go back to the pandemic and kind of tie all this together and how we navigated it, um, we were in the middle of building the house. And we were actually living with my parents. Mm-hmm. Well, about the third week of January, I got an email from the hospital association. And I get emails from them frequently. And it said it was just kind of an alert email to let us know that a coronavirus um, was found in China. And I, I read it and it sparked my interest because it kind of sent off some red flags just because of the tone of the email. And I even made a comment to my parents and my husband. I'm like, this is weird. They're saying that there's a virus over in China and they think it come from a bat. And um, they're like closing things down, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they say, you know, it's not in the U.S. yet, but heads up, basically. Mm -hmm. And so in the background, we're hearing all these rumblings. Right. And so fast forward to maybe... The first part of February, my timeline's not going to be accurate because I can't remember. But, you know, we heard about it in New York City. We heard about it in Washington State. And when we started hearing about it, these places were like, it's a matter of time. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of time before it comes here. So what do we do? So we've talked about pandemics through history. Some people, as your family, has been uh, affected by it, Richard, People that work with me, we had never been in a pandemic because right. there's nobody employed right. really that 
oh. you know, 1912, 1914. And that was the last major thing that we um, have record of that was considered, I guess, a true pandemic that affected things the way COVID did. But as things progressed throughout the country, Dr. Matt Hansard, who at the time uh, was very, very interested in what was going on, and he has cohorts and peers throughout the country that he was, you know, talking to people often, and he was like, you know, alarm bells were sounding with him. It's coming. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When. And so we try to be prepared. We call it continue readiness for emergencies, for disasters. And so, you know, we prepare for, or I feel like we're prepared for a tornado. We're prepared for a bus wreck. Mm -hmm. We're prepared for a house fire that has, a you know, a lot of family members in it. Um, Emergencies where we have water that's cut off or Things are shut down for well, different reasons. Well, these are really acute problems. Yes. You deal yes. with it in the moment, and then it's going to be over. It's not yeah. something like this no. that we're still dealing with years and we, later. And we we even prepare for ninety six hour ninety six hour sustainability drills, where if we if everything's shut down, what do we have to have to keep us functioning for ninety six mm-hmm. hours? Good, great. So, and we do this often. But um, when we got our first case, I think it was in Huntsville. Then there was a case in Decatur. And it was on a Thursday afternoon that we tested somebody at one of our clinics. And I got a call from our infection preventionist and said, I think we have our first case in Limestone County. And at that time, we couldn't do a test and know within a couple of minutes. <laughs> oh, I remember. We couldn't. We didn't know within sometimes a couple of days. Yeah. So sure enough, I got the call late Friday afternoon that she's positive. Mm-hmm. So quarantine for two weeks. You know, everybody that was exposed to her needed to be tested. And at that point, masks weren't weren't talked about. We, were, Of course, we were gloved and gloved and did the, all the things we could to protect ourselves, but we really didn't know how it affected people. We hadn't heard of deaths locally yet at that time. Right. So we knew that once you get one, you're going to get a bunch. Right. So that was on a Friday afternoon. So I was on the phone most of Saturday, and... Um, I told our incident command, I said, we need to meet the hospital and we need to get a game plan because we need to be prepared. Right. We need to be proactive. So we met at the hospital on 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. I think it was March the 15th, somewhere around in there. And we had a whiteboard out and we said, this is what we need to do. And we looked at setting up a testing site. We looked at the supplies that we had. We looked at, um, you know, how we protect our employees Education to the public was a big thing. How do we get the word out? How do we let people know, you know, it's business as usual at the hospital, but this is what you need to do to help us. Um, we looked at how do we restrict people from coming into the hospital. And then, then as time went on, within the next couple of weeks, we had people start more and more positive. Oh, yeah. Around the 20th to the 28th, something around in there, we had our first patient in the hospital. Um, she was a young lady around 20 years old. And we were learning through Dr. Hansard and things that we were hearing from other parts of the country, the people that were more susceptible to COVID, Mm -hmm. anyone with comorbidities, high blood pressure, obesity, um, the elderly, wasn't a big thing with children. Right. Um, You know. That's a big difference between COVID and flu. Yes, absolutely. Like I said, it Mm -hmm. disproportionately affected young people. But the weird thing was, as susceptible as those people were, we were also seeing very, very healthy people very, very sick. Mm-hmm. So the, this patient came in. She was placed on a ventilator. I mean, she was in her, like I said, tw- in her early 20s. And it was very scary. Dr. Hansard and our education team set up classes 
to learn how to take care of these patients. And at like that, classes for nurses, classes for nurses on how, because at that point, pretty quickly, we learned that we couldn't transfer people out. We could some, but we was going to be limited where we could normally just pick up the phone and say, hey, we have a patient we're sending to you like we do with a cardiac patient or a neuro patient. Um, we couldn't because they were full. Wow. Other hospitals oh, yeah. were full. I remember they were setting up triage wards and parking decks at parking, the height yes, of it. Yes, yes. And so we were also looked at alternative sites if it came to that. Um, did y'all ever have to go into that, or were you able to manage it there at the hospital? Well, we did have to change some uh, the dynamics at the hospital internally, but as far as doing inpatient care outside of the hospital, we did not. But Dr. Hanscher, the classes you asked me yes. about. So a lot of these people, we learned out, you know, COVID affects your lungs and your respiratory system. So the best way that they were treating some of these patients was to put them prone, which was to lay them on their belly. Well, we didn't have prone beds. Mm-hmm. We didn't have those special beds that you place patients on. So they set up classes to teach those nurses how to flip the patients on a ventilator to where they were prone. Wow. And I mean, this Just is kind of making do with what you have, huh? It was. And it was like, it was almost like a war zone because we barricaded the ICU. It became a closed unit. You didn't go in there. Right. The staff, we sent them trays of, were of disposable meals. They didn't have to go out to go to the cafeteria, so they weren't exposed to other employees. Um, you know, the lab, everything was done to where it was picked up outside. Nobody went behind that door unless you were working. Um, at one point, it got to where we had a clean ICU and a dirty ICU. We had to close our surgeries down because we have a 10-bed ICU. At one point, we had, I think, about 18 COVID patients that required ICU care. So the only other place, really, that we felt at the time that could handle the ICU patient or the critical patient was our PACU or our recovery room. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because a lot of patients that come out of surgery, you know, are still on ventilators. So in order to close our PACU, we had to close surgeries. So that meant all elective cases were canceled, only emergent cases. We developed a surgical council to where there may be those patients that it wasn't emergent, but it was urgent. You didn't need to put it off. At this point, we didn't know how long we were going to have to put this off. And so any doctor or surgeon that felt like it was an urgent case, they just presented it to the council and they so helped them. So who was the council made up of? I mean, you got to name everybody, but in general, yeah. was it doctors? It, it, it was all doctors. Okay. Um, and I, I sat on it as well, but they were the decision makers. That, that struck me because I didn't mention this, but in 1918, during the flu pandemic here, the county established an influenza council mm-hmm. and several health workers, healthcare workers, doctors were on this council. And of course, a lot of that council was not to determine, you know, surgeries, who gets it and who doesn't, but that was really more just to help forge the community response mm-hmm. and what to do about it. And mm-hmm. I, I'm wondering if you kind of had something like that set up as well. I mean, it sounds like Dr. Hanser did quite a bit of that, but did you have some kind of a, a crew of people working on community response like that? We had so many subcommittees out of our incident command. Um, and this is what we do when there is a disaster or there is an emergency. We open an incident command center where uh, we meet. And honestly, when COVID started, we met every day. Wow. Um, and we met in person. And then when all the things started happening with don't get close, you know, six feet apart, mask, we started using Zoom. Mm-hmm. And that helped us a lot. During the first few weeks, um, as our first patient came a few days later, one of our nursing supervisors uh, was diagnosed and she was our first employee 
And uh, she won't mind me telling you her name was Renee McGill. Mm -hmm. She's been at the hospital about the same amount of time that I have. Everybody knows Renee. So both of y'all are veterans. We're vets. (laughs) We're the OG. In this war. Yeah. (laughs) So Renee got sick, got tested. She came to the hospital about on her third day, and she was placed on a ventilator. Mm. So she was in our ICU, and the staff was just... You know, it's personal. It's devastating because it's a family. Really, when you talk about a small hospital like Athens Limestone Hospital, it's a small town like Athens. Everybody knows each other. Everybody knows everybody, and our staff is extremely close. And as I said, everybody knows Renee. And those nurses and those physicians were working so hard to save her life. And I've told her the story since. And, you know, Dr. Hanser came in my office one day, and he said, Renee's not going to make it. And we both just cried. Uh And, you know, there was a lot of prayers that went up for her. And y'all know the story about three weeks later, Renee went home. Renee's working 12-hour shifts now. Thank God. And she's, Thank God. she's She's a, a walking miracle because at that time, you know, vaccines weren't available. Everything we were learning as we as we went. That was in March. In June, um, we just navigating best yeah. we can, meeting daily. Um, during this time, the community, I cannot say enough about the things that they did for our staff. Like, what are some examples? There were prayer vigils in our parking lot. They came up there, horns honking, lights mm-hmm. blinking, and people hollering, and our staff coming out and waving in their full PPE. And everybody's telling us, thank you, we love you. Amen. Uh, companies reached out to provide meals, goodie bags for our employees. It was phenomenal to see. Mm-hmm. I remember so much of that at the beginning of the pandemic, but... You know, people get weary, and yet the nurses and the doctors and administrators, you have to go on. And did it reach a point? Because I mean, this is a battle that's still waging. It's better than it was. But did you ever get to a point where you all and your staff and everything just felt discouraged? I've seen that so much about healthcare. Oh yeah, I mean, our support for one another. I think. I know that helped get us through the worst part of it. It's kind of the new norm, is what we call it now. But it was. There was a lot of burnout that was experienced. And the other thing I think that was really, really hard on the staff was all the death. Mm. Um, I think we've had under 200 deaths since March of 2020 in our hospital. We keep up with statistics because early on during those first few days, we started writing everything down. So we have a record of everything we did and the timeline that we did it. That's something that would be a good thing to have for future reference as people 100 years from now study this. Yeah, We we had action logs that we developed that was everything we saw that needed to be done, and then we assigned somebody to be responsible for it with deadlines, and then we would keep a rolling comments of what we did for that particular thing. What works, what doesn't work, that type thing? Well, more so of... Is this what we need to continue to work toward? Have we met the deadline? Can we cross it off our list? How is it going? Uh, That type thing. Who else is involved? Who else do we need to pull in? But in June, David Pryor, who was the CEO at the time, resigned. And at that point... So y'all dealt with the resignation of a CEO right at the height of the pandemic. Yeah. And and David actually was involved in the Pfizer trial for the vaccine. Um, His wife and he owned North Alabama Research. Mm -hmm. Um, He's a pharmacist uh, prior to coming to be the CEO at the hospital. And so David went 
to work on that. Oh, so wow. we had a great relationship with them yeah. for, to procure the vaccines. We were one of the first 13 hospitals in the state that were able to get the Pfizer vaccine. She stays ahead of the bunch. That's she right. does. No, That's right. I have a great team. But so um, Jeff Sands at Huntsville reached out to me the end of June and said, we, we need somebody to be interim, you know, once David leaves and asked me, would I do that? And I said, sure. <laughs> like, why not? Why yeah. not take on the helm of the hospital at the height of pandemic? Trial sure. by fire, You're right? Like, what, for punishment yeah. or what? Yeah. So um, I, I took that, I sent that responsibility and that was the end of July. And probably two or three months later, everybody's like, well, you're going to do this from now on, I said, no, I think it's just interim until they find somebody. But I noticed that they didn't have a search for another CEO. <laughs> and then the end of November, Jeff reached out and says, is this something you want to do? And I'm like, you know, I love it. Right. And I do want to do Hallelujah. This. And so in December, I was named permanent. And so all I know is pandemic as in this role. <laughs> and so it's like, it's got to get easier, right? <laughs> um, but during this you time... You just jumped right into the yeah, deep end on this the, one. The head first. But to be fair, you had been swimming around the pool for a real long time before you got to that point. And as CNO, you know, with, with my team and with the support of the medical staff... We were navigating things clinically as best we could and having to make decisions on a dime and having to change gears on a dime. So it just kind of, it felt right. And I was very, very blessed to be able to say, yes, I want to do this. During that time, we decided we had to have a vaccine clinic because we were going to be, we were going to be getting that. Okay. So how are we going to get our employees and our medical staff vaccinated? And then guess what? In just a few weeks, we want to get all of Limestone County vaccinated because in our minds at the time, I mean, I had people begging and calling saying, I'm not a medical staff member or I'm not an employee, but I need to get a vaccine because X, Y, Z. And right, I was like, right. You know, so thankfully, ADPH or Alabama Department of Public Health gave us, and CDC gave us guidelines of who needs to be vaccinated first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then as it reached out to the public, we know, you know, Athens, our hospital is landlocked. We do not have a lot of extra space that would support thousands of people coming through a week to get a vaccine. So we quickly developed a vaccine team and we started looking, where can we ask in our community that we can do this vaccine clinic? And we tried to look at the parameter of Limestone County and we need 72 is the epicenter and Emmanuel Baptist Church was Mm -hmm. like, that's a great, we reached out and I cannot say enough about our partnership with Emmanuel. Their church members helped us and assisted us. We had volunteers in the community that worked at that clinic. Our vaccine team, we had a team. And, and if any of you went to that, it was a well-oiled machine. Yes, I certainly did. As soon as I was eligible, I jumped on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Health department. Yes. It was, Thank you, Lord. It was a well-oiled machine. And uh, our team, we had nurses. We had nursing students from Calhoun that mm-hmm. helped assist with that. We also did another clinic out at Round Island off of Lucas Ferry, yes. um, and we had clinics there. We had another one at David's Chapel out at Tanner, and um, we went to different industries, and we were able to do this with our employees, and we didn't yeah. have, you know. Well, and even before the vaccine, having testing sites mm-hmm. set up was another major logistical feat. I do remember going through drive-through testing sites out of the sports place. It was. We, we, my nose swabbed all the way up to my brain. The city helped us with that, mm-hmm. and, and that was another thing that our team did. It's our COVID task force, mm-hmm. and we was like, where can we do this? It needs to be a drive-through. It needs to be easily accessible, not to block traffic. So we batted around a lot of different ideas, and it's like, 
that's a that's a great place. And mm-hmm. the city helped coordinate that. You know, the police department was involved. You wouldn't believe everything it took just to do that. The supplies for sure. it alone. Sure. Um, then calling results. You know, we had nurses uh, that were calling results. Then we getting stuff from the state. We're getting stuff from Birmingham. We're getting stuff from Huntsville Hospital. But early, early on in all of this, before we started the testing, we wanted to make sure that we could do it here. That yeah. we had to send anything out. So we started looking very closely, very quickly at what it would take for our instrumentation to be at the hospital here that we would be able to do it. Yeah. And we got a lot of equipment sure. because we jumped ahead. Was a lot of that at the Waddell Center over there on Washington Street? They did. Once things kind of got where we could do them at our outreach clinics, they had the perfect spot because mm-hmm. it was the canopy. So they would come out oh, to your yeah. car and swab you. They did that. Um, it's just constantly wheels are spinning what worked here what didn't what we need to do next time how we call results then you get the monoclonal antibodies Mm -hmm. right y'all remember when we had the infusions once again were we going to do it because we don't have space we did a makeshift infusion clinic in our icu lobby in the lobby because the hospital shut down to visitors you know unless you're in the still no, it's not. Okay. Um, we try to limit as best we can, and if we have a COVID patient, it's it's restricted. Mm-hmm. At one point, we had barricades up in the hall where it was zippers that you went in and out. Unless you were taking care of COVID patients, you didn't go back there. Right. Um, but with the infusion, monoclonal antibody infusion, these are people that are COVID positive. And if you're familiar with our Sanders Street engines, there's mm-hmm. a little... I see you lobby over to the side. Yep. And I think they were doing four patients at a time. And the infusions last anywhere from two to three hours because you had to prep them, then you mm-hmm. the infusion, and then you had to watch them for a little bit afterwards. But we had to have a whole telephone line set up just for monoclonal antibodies. The doctor's offices would call. We had a, a process where they faxed the information mm-hmm. to us. We screened them to make sure if they were appropriate for the antibody uh, infusions. Mm-hmm. We had a hotline that people called. That was one of the things we did in March. We set up a COVID hotline. Mm-hmm. If you have mm-hmm. questions, call this number. We try to direct you because we knew that the switchboard was going to be inundated. And I wished I had brought with me all the things we did that first month. And then how things evolved. We went from setting up the things to the testing and then to the well, vaccines. Yeah. And, um, yeah, well, because just when you kind of get to where, okay, we've got it, we're, we've got a system, we're dealing with this, we're dealing with the influx, we're dealing with this, then things shift and change. I think that's one thing that's been a source of just public frustration with COVID is every time we get used to like what you call the new normal, it changes again. And all of a sudden you've got to adjust and you've got to regroup. And, and not only that, you know, from the top down plan, but you've got so many moving parts and so many people moving those parts. It, it's really like, trying to turn around an entire army, isn't it? It really, yes, it was. It was a lot. Everything that we had done up to that point, we thought prepared us for a disaster, and it did. It helped Mm -hmm. us prepare. It was just navigating uncharted waters because we had never had to deal with a pandemic before. We had never had a disease of this caliber where the very, very sick were very, very sick, but you had a healthy person that was that was dying we had 40 year olds passing away and we had 88 year old people going home it's crazy isn't it yes and it was just almost like luck of the draw is what it feels like sometimes doesn't it yeah and and the and the staff dealing with because when you are ready to be discharged we want you to go home we want you to be better yeah and we were having so many of those people that weren't going home better and we had you know 
in any given day or any given week, we could have lost five or six people, which is not what we want. Right. Um, and that's a lot for a small hospital. It's a, it's, it's a whole lot. It's just devastating. It seems like it's kind of wave after wave. Because I, I know nurses and doctors are not robots. They're humans. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's, yeah. It seems like the mental health toll that that takes. It has. And dealing, and dealing with that death and dying has been has been very, very hard on the staff because you talked earlier about burnout. It was feeling so hopeless yeah. and feeling so helpless at times. And I think, and I say a new normal, but still we have these COVID patients. Thank goodness that we don't see near as much death. We right. do see some very sick patients. I guess in the past two or three months, we've only had maybe two or three deaths. We are seeing the boosters and people still getting vaccinated. And, you know, you brought up a good point. Uh, everybody was in line to get that polio that's vaccine. Right. Yeah, that's right. Because you just heard this is what you need that's to right. do to stay alive. It wasn't a Democrat or Republican thing. No. You go get it. Yeah, because you wanted to do what was right. Right. Yeah. And this has been turned into a lot of times, I think, as political agenda. Oh, it's horrible. And it's not that. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, they say uh, hospitals are making all this money on COVID. We've kept up with expenses since yeah. day one. It's been a lot of expenses. Well, and um, have you read the book, The Great Influenza? It's talking about the Spanish flu pandemic. And one thing that did strike me is that wartime politics were at play at that time and affected the response in some of the similar ways that just the political division that we have today has affected the response. And if we were to go into that, it would be a a whole nother podcast and we're about close to time. But I want to ask two questions before we wrap. Although if there's something else you want to say, of course, it's your time. Yeah, no, but what you just said, this is not new. Right. Well, it's just new to us. Exactly. And we just have to learn to navigate it as best we can. And you mentioned early on that I'm an expert and I am nowhere near an expert in any of it, but I have lived through it. Yeah. It's made us stronger stronger it's made us better not only as a hospital but as a community i can't say enough about it yeah i'm sorry i just get yeah and that really segues into the two questions i want to ask is one are there ways that you all learned from pandemics and responses and all of that you know learn from history to inform how you would deal with covid and second is we staved it off for a long time but the truth matters of the course of humanity pandemics hit the human population so what have you learned from that past, and what do you hope to carry forward into the future when it comes to this? So in the past, when all this first started, and we talked about COVID and how we could fix it and what could we do to prevent it and all the things, they said up front, there's no known cure. You know, there was a lot of scare that was mm-hmm. that was emphasized, or I think a lot of emphasis was put on the public. So as healthcare workers, we're like, Looking back, do you know what helped eradicate these diseases? Vaccinations. Mm -hmm. So when we found out that we were going to be one of the first places to have a vaccine in the Mm -hmm. state and we were getting so many thousand doses or so many hundred, I can't remember the number at the time, we were so pumped. Mm -hmm. And I remember even doing a, a media interview and I'm like, we're so excited the vaccine is going to be a great thing for the county. So that's one thing that we learned from the past. And we thought that that was going to help. Yeah. Little did we think that it was going to become controversial right. and you're not going to stick me. Sure. And, you know, that's your choice. That's, that's right. That's the beauty of living in America. That's it right. is your choice Although of what you want to do. I will say, when you look over the history, there are a lot of vaccines that have been mandated yes. ever since they came out. You yeah. can't go to school if you don't have your t 
you know, exactly. there are a lot that have been. That's, that is the truth. And, and as people have asked me during this time, what would you do? What would you do? Would you get the vaccine? And I would say, you know, I'll always say it. It's your personal choice. And I don't want anything forced on me, my family, or you. But looking back at history, you can't go to school without a blue card. Yeah. You have to have vaccines. And they weren't trying to shove it down your throat or make it for your harm. It's for your good and the good of public health. Yeah. And so I think a lot of that's got lost mm-hmm. in today's society, which is really, really sad. Oh, so, but so. looking forward, um, you ask how we can take what we've learned from this experience. I guess the biggest lesson learned is it takes a team mm-hmm. um, to care, not just for each other, but for our community. I love our hospital. Mm -hmm. And I think if you ask anybody, they will tell you how passionate I am, but not just me. There are so many employees there that are truly, truly passionate that we want to be the best. Um, I had a comment today from a patient about how I felt, I felt like I was treated like family. And this was an unsolicited comment that just said, hey, I just left and I was treated like family. And this person did not know that that's kind of our mantra. Yeah. Um, it's, it's different at Athens. It is. Well, um, Athens Hospital Hospital was founded in the 50s by the community, for the community. Yeah. It wasn't some big health conglomerate that came in. It was doctors in the city and the county who all said, we want to serve our community. We yeah. want them to be healthy yeah. and strong. Are we perfect? Absolutely not, because we're imperfect humans. Right. But I can tell you, at the core, um, just like the staff that came and met with us that first Sunday in March that we went into pandemic planning, you know, they come up there, and it was just like, we were there for all that. We were there for hours, um, probably close to 12 hours, and and we were just getting ready for what was to come. And these are people that are passionate about our community and about the healthcare of the community. And I think the biggest lesson I can learn is it takes all of us. It takes planning. Be prepared because just when you think you've got it all figured out, there's going to be another spin to it. Yes. You know, we had a makeshift ICU in our PACU. We had a makeshift vaccine clinic at a church. We had a stand-up <laughs> testing site at a ball field. Right. Um, you know, we made prone beds out of regular beds mm-hmm. for our ventilator patients. We had a medical staff that said, hey, and you know, surgeries, their livelihood. For some yeah. of our doctors, they were shut down for six weeks that they could not do cases. But you know what That's they right. did? They stepped up and said, we'll do what we can, and we're here to support you. Um, you make me cry, too. It is phenomenal, and that's what's unique about us. We're a small hospital, but the quality and just the care that right. we provide, and it's not just lip service, and it's not just touting everybody else's, you know, that they're the best and all of this. It's the truth. Mm-hmm. Um and we, we will continue. If we have a monkeypox outbreak or, or whatever else, we, as a matter of fact, we've already have policies in place mm-hmm. for our first monkeypox case. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that doesn't happen. But if it does, I feel like we're prepared and we'll take it as it comes. Yeah. And I'm just proud of how our team did navigate that. The support of the Huntsville Hospital Health System. We started daily calls with them as well mm-hmm. in the middle of this. Those have continued. We meet every week as a system, um, as leadership with every affiliate hospital, which there's 13 hospitals now. We have a call every Tuesday, and then we have a safety call every Thursday. Mm-hmm. And we discuss our supplies. We discuss what's going on at each hospital so that we're supported. They were that's a great. tremendous uh, help to us during this well, time as well. that's great that it's not just the Limestone County community, but all of the Tennessee Valley area pulling together. Absolutely. Which is part of what makes this one of the best places in the world to live, I think. 
Well, that's what they're saying. But we already knew that, didn't we? Well, Tracy, I know you're an important lady and you've got other places to be and we've already taken a lot of your time, but oh my goodness, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you coming in here and talking with us about this and the work that you do and everyone at the hospital. It's just a blessing, isn't it, Richard? Amen. amen. I have enjoyed it so much. You've been a God thing, woman. You yeah. better got that. Well, absolutely. I appreciate oh, that. I'm serious. It's this... a great place to live. It's a great place to work. And I, I, I appreciate the opportunity and for you. And thank you guys for having me today. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a good place to sign off. Don't you okay. think, Richard? Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us for another episode of Homegrown History and your Limestone County History Podcast. And we'll see you next month. Stay healthy. Amen. You've been listening to Homegrown History, presented by the Athens-Limestone County Public Library and the Limestone County Archives in Athens, Alabama. For more information and to submit questions or suggestions, please visit limestonearchives.com. And to hear other recordings from our Library Voices series, check out our website at alcpl.org. You can also listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts.